0: Have you ever wanted to know more about the judge set to preside over your case? Welcome to Beyond the Bench, where San Diego mediators Joanne Rezzo and Jim Picorni get up close and personal with judges from state court as well as federal court. Here are Joanne and Jim.
1: Joanne, I can't believe it. We have been trying to get Magistrate Judge Retired, William Gallo, to sit down with us and he has agreed to do so and here we are and it's really happening.
0: It is. I can't believe it. So lucky. Thank you, Judge Gallo, for being here with us today.
2: Well, you're, you're welcome. It, uh, I, I, you're
0: very courageous mm-hmm. because I think you know Jim McCorney, and you went into this with your eyes wide open.
1: Well, not really. <laughs> there was some yeah. arm twisting involved.
2: There was a lot of that.
0: There was a lot I of believe that. it. With Jim, <laughs> I believe it. He can be very persuasive.
2: Well, He's not very persuasive at all, but uh, he's persistent. So my it?
0: understanding is you guys have known each other for a couple years now
2: couple. I would say going on. No, 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 Jim. You're you're obviously getting old and your mind is going soft. No, it's going on close to 30.
1: 30 years? Yes.
2: It was in in the early 90s when we had our first case together.
1: And you were in AUSA? I
2: was in AUSA.
1: How long had you been with the office at that time?
2: When we first met? Yeah. Probably just a couple of years. And what did you So I started in 91 and it was in the early 90s. I'm going to say 94 or 94 when we had our first case together
1: so what had you done before you were an assistant U.S. attorney
2: I was another assistant U.S. attorney in Chicago So I don't
1: think I know that, really?
2: yeah, yeah. so uh, there you go we're That's, hearing his chime it's, it's <laughs> right on cue, yeah. so you're in Chicago Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, I was at AUSA in Chicago before moving to San Diego and before Chicago I was a prosecutor in Yuma, Arizona And before that, I was an active-duty Marine.
1: Uh, Were you at the Marine Corps Air Station in Yuma?
2: I was. Did you ever fly in and out of there? Many times. Yeah. 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 I'm surprised they let you in. Well, you know, I got (laughs) special
1: permission. I'm surprised anyone lets them in. Yeah, that's true. I told them I knew judges, and they they let me in. So so you started off in in Yuma, you said?
2: Well, that isn't where I... I mean, practicing law. No, I started off in Okinawa practicing law.
1: JAG Corps. JAG. Well...
2: You know, we Marines don't like to say "Jag Corps."
1: What do we like to say?
2: Well, we like to say we're Marine officers. All right, Marine officers. So, okay. So, uh, a, a brief education <clears throat> about uh, the military and lawyers in the military, which might help you for you know, not embarrass yourself in the future. Uh, so that's a tough call for Jim. No, that's true. Uh, so. Um, A Marine officer is a, first and foremost, a a Marine, a Marine rifleman. And Marine officers uh, are unlimited line officers, unlimited duty line officers. And we have the ability as a Marine officer to go into a number of different military occupational specialties. Now, of course, they're not going to say, okay, Gallo, there's a F-16, climb in it and and fly away. Uh, Whereas uh, the other branches of service, the lawyers in those other branches of service are limited line officers, limited duty officers. So if you're a lawyer in the Navy, Mm -hmm. Air Force, Army, Coast Guard, now Space Force, That's what you are, and your uniform indicates such. There is a badge, a bell, a whistle, a button, like they all have on their uniforms that say, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a dentist, I'm a candlestick maker, Indian chief, whatever it is. Uh, The Marine Corps, if you look at a Marine officer and you look at that officer's uniform, uh, you probably will not know what that officer does.
1: Because that officer can do any of the number of right. things.
2: Now, you know, aviators have wings on their on their uh on their uniform, which would indicate that they are an aviator. And there's a few other telltale signs, but we don't show what we do specifically. So when you say Jag Corps, mm-hmm. that's that's something that's That's really a Navy thing, maybe. Navy, Air Force, Army. Yeah. Uh, because that's what you are. You're a core of judge advocates, and okay. that's what you do.
0: Well, now I know. Yeah. So, have you spent any time at Camp Pendleton at all? I have. Yeah? Quite Were you bit. stationed there in the military? Or? Uh, I
2: was never uh, stationed at Pendleton on active duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, uh, but I've done a lot of things at Camp Pendleton as a reservist.
0: I was born there.
2: What? Really? I was
0: born back when they had a white clapboard hospital on Camp Pendleton.
2: Yeah. Well, that hospital, yeah. that that physical structure, I believe, still exists. They oh, I'd love a, to see it. They have, uh, within the last decade, uh, erected a brand new state-of-the-art hospital because of the war.
0: Yeah, you can see it from it, the highway. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. That's right. Yeah. I was born there. My father was an uh, airman in the Army Air Corps in World War II.
2: Yeah, so, so was, was my dad. A pilot. Really? Yes, my dad was a uh, pilot, uh, B-25 pilot.
0: You knew where he was stationed?
2: My dad. Yeah. I sure do. Where? Well, his last duty station was out at two Alaska before he got shot down. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. My dad uh, flew B 25s. Wow. And, Those are big ones, right? Uh, four engine planes. Okay. Uh, and uh, they're not the biggest, uh, but they carry a payload. Mm-hmm. And he was shot down on uh, a few days before his 20th birthday by the Japanese. Wow. And was captured. Uh, it was a POW. How long? Uh, for one year. Uh, oh, my Until right after his 21st birthday, he was released. The war ended at that point, right after the bombs were dropped. Wow. And my dad <laughs> served in, uh, I shouldn't say served, was in POW camp with uh, Pappy Bowington, <laughs> uh, uh, with the Baba Black Sheep, uh, Black Sheep Squadron, colonel uh, at the time, and also Louis Zamperini.
1: Ah, the runner from uh, the,
2: Torrance. The runner for, from Torrance uh, and the, the, of the book and of the movie. And of the airport named after him.
1: Torrance Municipal Airport is Zamperini Field. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Landed so. there too. Now, did uh,
0: your dad tell stories about his time in the service through World War II or no?
2: Well, not for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Not, for, not for the longest time. It wasn't really until I was in uh, high school. Uh, that my dad started opening up about it, uh, and now that I've served, you know, through you know, the wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, presided over Veterans Court, and I've come to to know and learn about post traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, uh, I realize uh, that that's what my dad suffered.
0: I'm sure a lot of them did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad was shot down too. No kidding. So he flew at. Thunderbol- Thunderbolts, uh-huh. out of uh, radon in England, over the English Channel, over France and Germany. And his last mission was over France, and he was heading home, and he got shot down over the English Channel. Get up. Landed in the water. He said, there was an article in the newspaper, and he told would tell the story too, when he was going down in his parachute, with a parachute on, he saw something red in the air. He was like, what's that red? And he looked down, his leg was gone. So he tied a tourniquet around his leg, floated in the water for, I think, 45 minutes until a British boat picked him up. British Navy ship. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So he lost And he leg? didn't want to come he... home. He wanted to stay and go back to the squadron. He just he loved being there. And they were, I well, think they thought morale would not be boosted by having
2: a... That's the greatest generation. That was their mindset. Really, yeah. It was, if I'm not dead, send me back to my unit.
0: Yeah, and that's how he lived his life. Yeah, his whole life was like that. So wow. Well,
2: thank that, you for that's your incredible. service. That's an incredible story. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Let's back
1: up. Where did you go to high school?
2: In Western Pennsylvania, a little little high school called Apollo Ridge High School.
1: Apollo Ridge. Apollo uh, Ridge. Eagles or the Vikings. The Vikings. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And do you play any sports when you were there?
2: I was on I was on teams. <laughs>
1: what teams uh, were you on? I, judge? Was,
2: I, I I I was on the football team for a short period of time. I. Didn't like being a tackling dummy for the seniors, uh, and I wasn't very good. So I then ran cross country and in, in, in the fall, and then I was also on the basketball team. Not very good. I, I, I rode the pine, uh, and I ran track, and I was slow as hell. What distance? Uh, I I ran the hurdles, and believe it or not, I had the best form of anybody on the on the team. But I was like I was running with a piano on my back. So
0: that speaks to the team. Yeah, but I had great
2: form. Yeah. Oh, I, well, that's important. I have really good important. form. Really good form. So
1: when you when you finished up the high school, what what'd you do then?
2: I knew that uh, early on, my dad instilled this in me. Uh, you know, wanting to practice law. My dad was not a lawyer, but uh, you know, just as an aside, uh, after after the war ended and he was liberated and returned. Uh, he stayed stayed in uh, the reserves, and then at that point in time, it uh, quickly transitioned from Army Air Corps to Air Force, and he was an Air Force Reserve. And then Korea started, right? And he got called back up again, and uh, because he was a POW, uh, they said, uh, "Hey, uh, I think he was a captain at that time, and he got promoted to major sometime during the Korean War." Uh, captain Gallo. Uh, how would you like to, to get back in the cockpit and fly over Korea or you can go to Germany? And, uh, he says, uh, I think I'll, I'll go to Germany. And so <laughs> it was an easy, easy choice. He didn't want to get shot down again, as yeah. your dad probably understood. And, and so he, um, he, he uh, served in Germany and he was, uh, although he wasn't a lawyer, he served in the legal department over there hmm. and he flew a lot. Wow. Uh, he flew a lot throughout, throughout Europe, and uh, actually flew into Baghdad a bunch of times and told me how beautiful Baghdad was back in those days, in the early 50s. So, um, and he uh, he kind of instilled in me uh, a, an interest in the law. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in, in high school, so college was the next step, the next uh, rung on the, on the ladder of becoming a lawyer, so I immediately went into college. And, Where'd you go? I went to Duquesne University, my dad, my dad's uh, alma mater in Pittsburgh, it's a Catholic school. I uh, graduated from there and then went right on to law school, Loyola in Chicago, another Catholic school.
0: Yeah? You sound like you were on the same education fam- or program as my husband's family. Is that right? They all went to Catholic elementary school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he broke the mold on law school, though we went to USC together, so, uh, yeah.
1: Go
2: figure. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you, you finished so, up law school and then what?
2: I, I joined the Marine Corps while I was in law school. Uh, it was commissioned while I was in law school. Interesting. And so uh, upon graduation, uh, the Marine Corps was generous enough to give all of us who had law contracts uh, time to study for the bar. And so I studied for the bar.
1: And got, got paid to do so.
2: And, and got paid to do so. Uh, fortunately, I passed the bar because they give you two cracks at it. If you don't pass it your second time, then you're a Marine officer, usually in the infantry. Mm. Which Ooh. in hindsight, actually, I, I, I wish I had done. Uh, not I wish I'd passed the bar. Yeah, but, but I, I could have infantry. opted. I could have gone into the infantry. And a friend of mine who's a lawyer here in town, uh, Doug Applegate, uh, he opted to give up his law contract and become an infantry officer. And mm. And I never understood that at the time. But looking back on it, I, I, I now understand it. And I wish I had done the same.
0: So why do you wish you had done that?
2: Uh, one is because I always I had the law degree. Mm-hmm. I had the law license. And I could have gone back to the law at any point in time in my career. Uh, but you can't always go back and become an infantry officer. Mm-hmm. You know? And so being a, a company-grade officer, uh, you know, leading Marines... Uh, I got a taste of you know later in life uh, when I got called up for the Iraq War, and it's something that uh, I found to be exhilarating, challenging, interesting, stimulating, and very rewarding. And I wish I'd have done that at a much earlier age. And who knows, I might have just stuck with it. Uh, I, I liked it so much later. All
1: the adjectives. How about scary?
2: Um, I, I, scary wasn't part of it. Really? No. Wow. No, I wouldn't add scary to that. Okay.
0: That's a true Marine.
1: There yeah. you go. Semper, yep. Semper Fi. Right. So uh, law school done, got paid to do, studied, passed the bar. First time. There you go.
2: Yeah. Not no, everyone pr- can say that. No. So
1: wh- where'd you go then?
2: Uh, uh, then <clears throat> once you pass the bar, then you go to.
1: Actually, which bar?
2: Pennsylvania. Okay. Because I, I thought that my time in the Marine Corps uh, was going to be one or two tours in and out, and I'd be back in Pennsylvania practicing law, where I grew up. Uh, and it made sense to me, to, even though I went to law school in Chicago, to take the Pennsylvania bar. Sure. So I took the Pennsylvania bar. <clears throat> and uh, so after passing the bar, then you go to, to the basic school. I'd already gone to officer candidate school while I was in law school in the summer between my second and third year. Uh, got through that. It was a little bit of a challenge physically, uh, and I wasn't prepared enough for it as I should have been. Uh, but I got through that, and then, then basic school. That's where you go, and that's in Quantico, just where, uh, same place as OCS. And that's a six-month program where they run the, uh, the officers, because uh, at that point in time, you are an officer. You're commissioned, uh, mostly second lieutenants. There are some first lieutenants. Uh, and they teach you all aspects of the Marine Corps, uh, all aspects, you know, the law, they give you a, a course on the law, supply, logistics, infantry, aviation, all the, the MOSs, military occupational specialties that the Marine Corps offers, or they, they offers, they give you, you know, course of instruction and all those, so you have a well-balanced, well a background in each and every one of them, mm-hmm. so you know how to employ those various <clears throat> components if and when the time comes.
1: Now, this is not the same stuff that the enlisted guys are learning about.
2: No, the enlisted who go through boot camp right. uh, at MCRD here in San Diego or MCRD in Paris Island, they, they get similar instruction. It's, it's different, but they also learn many of the aspects of the Marine Corps and the various occupational specialties. So they, too, can learn how to use them, employ them when and if necessary. And then they go off to their specialty school, as Marine officers do. Once you graduate basic school, uh, you go to your specialty school, whether you're going to be a comm officer, communications officer, supply officer, logistics, aviator, mm-hmm. law. For, for me, I went to Naval Justice School then for two months to learn in-depth you know, practice of law in the military and Uniform Code of Military Justice, admin right. law, law of war, rules of arm, uh, armed conflicts, so forth.
1: So UCMJ is what they taught you when you went off to your to the law course.
2: Yeah. And and, and again, you get a you get a, a summary cursory view of that while you're in basic school, because even would you like for me to shut off the grandfather <laughs> no, by one, the clock? I, I like the background. Okay. I, like, I like the it's church. Nice okay. Time. So um, you get a, a summary course in the Uniform Code of Military Justice because as a company or field grade officer, you need to understand it too if you're going to employ discipline and know how to do it.
1: Wow. So
0: I, I've always said that almost every young person can benefit from doing some military service. Totally agree. In other countries, it's compulsory. I I know in Israel, it's compulsory. You have to do three years, I think, of military service, and I think it gives kids, seventeen-year-olds graduating from high school, a chance to grow up, figure things out a little bit, you know, become adults before they go off to college. I think it'd be smart.
2: No, I I, I agree.
1: I agree. There are a lot of immature high school graduates. There sure are.
2: And get into trouble. And and older lawyers. There's that too. That's true. Yeah, You never know what that's You're
0: not pointing you. at Jim right now, are you? Well, I was looking at Jim. <laughs> I wasn't pointing. I,
2: pointing would be rude.
1: Yeah, for the <laughs> listeners here, this is, since this is not a video, uh, video podcast, he listeners. He did glance directly in Jim's direction. <laughs> it mean, wasn't a that. glance. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a, a direct <laughs> stare. You know, you know, direct direct shot. You guys are great. You so, so how long were you in the law course? How long did that last?
2: Uh, that was two months. Then what? Then my first duty station, which was Okinawa.
1: How long were you in Okinawa?
2: I was in Okinawa a year and a half, Iwakuni, which is on the mainland of Japan, for six months. And then from there, Puerto Rico, at Rosie Roads when it was still open. Mm-hmm. It was a naval base. Uh, and then uh, two years there, and then two years in uh, Yuma.
1: Jag the whole way.
2: Not jag. I was a judge advocate.
1: Judge advocate the whole yes, way. Yes, yes. Okay. Prosecuting or defending?
2: My first tour of duty at, in Okinawa, uh, when I first arrived, was as a defense counsel. And I held that... That billet for about a year.
1: I knew we had something in common.
2: Yeah, not much. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I realized uh, that my personality was better suited f- for the other side uh, and the prosecution side. And, and so I asked uh, eventually to move over there, uh, and I was, you know, allowed to do that. And I moved over to the prosecution side. Now I will say this that. Uh, Having been a defense counsel briefly for that roughly year period of time, uh, I think it made me a better prosecutor. I also think defense counsel, and this is this is a, a nod to you, Jim, uh, are, are far more creative than than prosecutors, generally speaking, because you don't have one. You don't have much to work with. You have to be creative. You have to be creative. One, you don't have much to work with, and and two. Uh, you're dealing um, sometimes with uh, cantankerous clients, clients who just refuse to accept responsibility, clients who, for whatever reason, um, just are difficult to work with. And and they are cloaked with the presumption of innocence. And so sometimes the the, the evidence isn't there. And you you want to Challenge and test the, the government's case, sure. and they want to go to trial and see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may. Um, so, I, I, I but I didn't think it suited me to be a, a full time, permanent uh, defense counsel.
1: So, the rest of the time you were a prosecutor.
2: The rest of the time I was a prosecutor uh, in uh, on while on active duty. Yeah. Right, that's right, and yeah.
1: until nineteen
2: ninety. No, uh, until nineteen eighty six. So I. I went in, you know, started right after law school. So I graduated law school in 79. I took the bar, went to basic school, justice school. And then in, at the end of that, then I started my my tours of duty uh, in the Fleet Marine Force uh, in 1980. And so 86, uh, two years in Japan, two years in Puerto Rico, two years in, in uh, Yuma, uh, I decided to... Uh, resign my active duty commission, and immediately go into the reserves.
1: And you ended up in San Diego in 90, 91?
2: I ended up in San Diego in 91. So uh, upon uh, getting off of active duty, I went to work at the county attorney's office in Yuma as a prosecutor for three years.
1: Oh, as a district attorney, deputy district attorney?
2: Right. Well, county attorney's office. Okay, that's what they call it. it. And then
0: how did you get to San Diego?
2: He well, drove. he drove. <laughs> I did drive, uh, but not the way you thought that I might have driven. So, uh, I there's a story m- there. Well, it's it's not much of a story, but it, there's it's a circuitous route to to San Diego. Uh, Everybody in Yuma, as you probably would imagine, uh, comes to San Diego in the summertime. And you see the signs uh, over here. Uh, you know, everybody's from, from Arizona. You know, go home zonies or zoners go home, whatever. Uh, my wife and her family, my wife is from Yuma, and her family, uh, a large family, uh, would always take their vacations here in San Diego. They, she loves San Diego. and there, What's not to love about it? Uh, but San Diego wasn't for me. It wasn't my cup of tea. I, I, I just, I, I grew up back East. I'd like the back East culture. Mm-hmm. I like the Italian communities. I like the Polish communities, the Hungarian communities, the food, the culture, I, 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 the change of seasons, you know, that was what I was used to, uh, plus all my family was back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was one of 13, my mom was one of eight. One of 13? Uh, there's wow. a family tree of my father right behind you, and you, know, I for, you can look and it'll tell you how many grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren my grandmother had, and so I had thousands <laughs> you know, of, of cousins, cousins. Yeah. living back in western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, and that's where I preferred to be.
1: You're giving us reasons why not to come to San Diego. We're waiting for your response.
2: So, uh, but I was, when we were in Yuma, I, I got married. I met my wife there and we uh, ultimately got married. And I was looking for a new challenge. I wanted to get to the U.S. attorney's office. So I applied to Chicago and to Pittsburgh at the U.S. attorney's office. And uh, just by, you know, the the timing of the United States mail and, uh, I got an offer from Chicago while I was back home with my wife at Christmas time, and my 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 buddy, uh, a fellow Marine, and one of my mentors in the Marine Corps, who's now in Yuma, was getting our mail. He said, there's a letter here from the U.S. Attorney's Office of Chicago. You want me to open it? I hey, hell yeah. And so he opened it, and there was an offer. Uh, and those offers are difficult, you know, it's a competitive yeah. position to get, and I was Fortunate and lucky to get it. Uh, I certainly didn't get it on my law school grades, but i you know a few other attributes I had might have got me over the top. So uh, I immediately accepted the position. But the next day, a letter came in from Pittsburgh, <laughs> which is the which is where I'd rather have been. Uh, but
0: you'd already accepted but Chicago, I, and I wasn't, gonna no. I wasn't going to turn that. I wasn't going to say
2: no. say no after I'd said said yes. So uh, my wife and I had an agreement that if one of us didn't like Chicago, so it had to be unanimous that we love, love Chicago, mm-hmm. I would try to get into the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego. Uh, Chicago was great. I, the work there was great. U.S. Attorney's Office there, one of the largest in the country, you have a lot of interesting cases, a lot of corruption cases, you know, a lot of stuff going on in mm-hmm. Chicago. And I like the work.
1: Don't forget the Cubs.
2: The, the Cubs were pretty decent back then. Uh, <laughs> the Bears were decent back then. Uh, the Bulls were certainly decent back then. Mike, that was a Michael Jordan era. I got a story about that too. Um, and so it was. Uh, it was a. It was a good place to live. Good, great place to work. Uh, but there were drawbacks, and the drawbacks weren't what I had expected. So when I was in law school, I lived literally right around the corner from the law school, and I could walk to the law school. I didn't Mm -hmm. have to take mass transportation, the L or a bus or anything else. I could just roll out of bed and roll into law school. Uh, When I moved there, uh, we lived in Highland Park, which is in Lake County. Uh, It's the county next to Wisconsin and then the county just north of Cook where Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is in Chicago. And I had to take a train to work. And at first, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, yeah, I'm like at a, first. I'm, I'm like a businessman. I go on the, get on the train in the morning with my briefcase into Chicago sometimes. I read the paper. It's a nice leisurely you know, ride to work. I get off at the train station in, in Chicago. And then it was a mile walk, which was nice right. most yeah. of the time, except in the winter. And uh, I liked that. It was, it was cool. But I was tried, I was tied to a train schedule. Mm-hmm. And when you first start working there at, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, you are in the uh, CRAD division. C- CRAD. CRAD, C-R-A-D, Criminal Receiving and Appellate Division. Okay. And so the Criminal Receiving and Appellate Division, it's like being in the, the intake unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office here. You, uh, you get a lot of the, you know, the grunt kind of, you know, not... You know the reactive kind of cases, sure, and uh, and that was that was cool for someone that was brand new to the federal system doing that. But you also did all the appellate work too for the entire office. You did both, wow, yeah, do both. Oh, uh, and uh, the appellate work was something that was brand new to me writing briefs, arguing. Uh, I like the, you know, the argument part was not brand new, but the writing, the briefs and the argument was, uh, was, was brand new. And so I had to spend a lot of time on my writing skills, which hadn't developed terribly much in the Marine Corps or at the US, or at the County Attorney's office. And I had a very demanding supervisor. And so those, those edits would sometime last till 10, 11 o'clock at night working with her, uh, uh, getting it right and getting it Ugh. the way she wanted, it. and then you have a mile walk. To and the you get train. a mile walk, and, and then the train. I had to catch the last train, which is at uh, ten o'clock at night. Wow, you missed that train. And if you missed that train, then you're back in your. You didn't even bother to walk over. You just slept in your office. So there are a few times where I ended up in Wisconsin because I fell asleep on a train.
0: Oh no! <laughs> uh,
2: and no one woke you up. No. And I would be in a train sta- a dark train station, a dark, you know, black as night train station with a hundred other trains pulled up right next to you and You're and just
0: asleep on the seats.
2: I'm asleep and there's no cell phones back then and I'm going Where well, am I? Where am I? What am what I what I done? And I have to call my wife up and uh, <laughs> once I made my way out and, and she have to come and get me. That happened a couple times. Um, <laughs> and so and then the snow, you know, digging out, I'd go to work, they'd plow the, the parking lot and I'd come home uh, at the end of the day and they plow right over your car uh and so you'd have to dig out it was and it wasn't just uh, so it was it was an inconvenient sort of
0: san diego sounds wonderful yeah. by
2: comparison so uh, yeah after a couple of years i said oh, okay
0: so who pulled the plug on the chicago
2: thing was it your wife it was or actually, was it you or was it mutual it was, it was mutual yeah yeah it was mutual
0: so you get out here to san diego
2: get out here side san diego in 91 Wait, did, so you had prearranged
1: the employment, or was it just an no, no, office no. transfer?
2: No, no, no. The, the, the U.S. attorney's offices are, are real. Uh, the best way to describe it is they're independent franchises. They all may be McDonald's, but you know they're all owned by an independent franchise, and you still have to get a job right. at, the, at the new office and the interview. Fortunately for me, um, one of my colleagues when I was in Okinawa, our 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 token navy squid lawyer mm-hmm. uh, Ed Allard, who you might know, is, very well, he, he was there and uh, at the U.S. Attorney's office in Chicago. He we served together in Okinawa, and he kind of greased the skids for me. Bill Braniff was the U.S. Attorney. I, mm-hmm. I interviewed. I got the job. So uh, then I moved out here. Audio
1: Chicago. Hello San Diego. Correct. Were you a happy camper when you got here? Then
2: I I enjoyed it because uh, one uh, having Ed as my you know my benefactor and, and, and so, sort of looking out for me uh, I wasn't in the intake section but a month and he was in the narcotics section which is uh, you know a more an advanced unit proactive unit yep so I, I moved out of the that intake section. Uh, very quickly and got into the narcotics section. That's where I spent the rest of my career. How long were you in the office total? Uh, 19 years.
1: Wow.
0: The narcotics section had to be a busy section being as close as we are to the border. Uh,
2: you would think. Uh, yeah, And the answer to that is yes, but we weren't doing the reactive border bus cases. We were doing the proactive long-term investigations of the Colombian and Mexican drug cartels. That's wow. that's what that section primarily focused on. The big conspiracies. Uh, yeah. Conspiracy yeah. cases. And that's, that's how I got to meet Jim, is one, one of those, those OSADEF cases. OSADEF yeah. meaning organized crime, drug enforcement, task force cases.
1: One of those happy days, yeah. Yeah.
0: My goodness. Wow. Well, I want to hear the Michael Jordan story.
2: Oh. So uh, we lived in a home, a modest home in, in Highland Park, and so did Michael Jordan. He lived literally right around the corner for us. It was a two-minute walk from my house. This was before he... Hit The big time okay. before he started before making air Jordan and all be, before he made his millions and billions. And he lived in this very modest home right around the corner. And he had a driveway that you could walk up, and he had a, a basketball court in the driveway. And whenever friends would visit, we'd walk over there. And he'd have you know, some fancy cars there, were some Porsches and uh, Ferrari, I think. with his vanity plates on Air Jordan or Michael J or whatever it was. And we'd go and put our feet up on the fenders and have pictures taken and, you know, shoot some hoops and then get the hell out of there. You didn't
0: actually shoot hoops with Michael Jordan. Not with him. Okay.
2: But yeah, we'd have pictures taken (laughs) pictures. (laughs) That's so (laughs) cool. And then we ran away before he came. (laughs) Um, But one day uh, while he was still living there and this was during the playoff season, we were playing the Pistons And I think this was in 1990, maybe 91, uh, but 19, somewhere in there. Uh, I'm driving down, uh, I think it's called Lake Cook Boulevard. It kind of separated. uh, And he was coming out of his little street and rolling through the stop sign. Didn't stop. And I happened to be coming on that street. And I nearly T-boned him right before, he, he was obviously on his way to the game. And he wagged his finger at me, and I wagged my finger back at him. And but as I'm doing that, it's flashing through my mind uh, what the headlines of the, the local the Tribune or the oh, would not have been good. No, he uh, took him out, Gallup no. takes out you know Michael Jordan. <laughs> Bulls lose playoffs. You'd be the villain of Chicago that <laughs> I would have been run point. out. I would have been run out on a rail.
1: It would have been as bad as the guy at the Cubs game executive. Totally, totally. <laughs> right. uh,
2: exactly. Oh, man. Exactly.
1: So uh, you became a magistrate judge, United States magistrate judge, as they termed them. Mm-hmm. When? What month? What year?
2: October the 15th, 2009. That's when I was sworn in.
1: Okay. And then that lasted through
2: this year? That lasted through October... 14th, 2023. 14, 14 years to the day.
1: Exactly.
0: Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. How are you enjoying retirement?
2: I wish I'd have done it 50 years ago.
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> Not all of us can afford to do it. Well, it at I that couldn't age. afford it at <laughs> then either. So, uh,
2: retirement's great. Uh, I don't know how I've managed uh, One, I'm staying. Uh, busy all the time. And I don't know doing the th- things I normally would do. So I don't know how I did all the things that I normally did and also I, work and make a living. And, and, and yeah, so it, it's interesting to me um, how it, it, if you have a list of things to do in a day, whatever that list might be, whether you write it down or it's just mental, uh, how you're able to manage your time, Go to go to work, get your work done, and then get all these other things done. But you somehow do it, mm-hmm. and uh, and now I do it, uh, but I do it maybe in a reverse order or a different order, and I'm able to do it when I want to do it. Uh, but I'm staying busy. I haven't been bored yet. Uh, so
0: knock on wood. Yeah, it's,
2: it's your, been good. a month and a half, and it's been a month and a half. Wow, well, I mean, and you're still not I'm bored. still not bored yet.
1: <laughs> So let's talk about when you're a magistrate judge. What yeah. was the what was the best part of that gig?
2: The best part, I would say, uh, is uh, working with the staff that I had around me. Um, typically, judges are older folks. Uh, we have some younger folks that are coming on now, as you probably know. Uh, but typically, judges are older folks, and typically. Our staff, our law clerks and courtroom deputies are younger folks. And so having young, bright, energetic, eager minds around you is invigorating. Uh, it's energizing. It, uh, it kind of keeps you young and keeps you on your toes. And it keeps me up with the lingo that the millennials use all the time, which, I, you know, I, I had no idea what it was. But now I, I can talk that language somewhat or at least understand it when it's being spoken.
1: Well, you know what a podcast is. So I know what a podcast
2: <laughs> is. I, I, I did have to look it up. But uh, uh, but that's what I enjoyed the most is just the uh, the, the, the camaraderie. Uh, one, the loyalty that those folks had to the, not, not to me, but to the process and to getting it right and, and having a product put out that was... You know, fair, that was legally sound, factually sound, read well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their commitment to that uh, was the part that I think I would say I liked the best, that I enjoyed the best, that it made me want to come to work every day and, and get there to interact with them and to have that exchange to mentor them, to help them in their own career choices and how they were going to uh, do uh, after, what they were going to do uh, after their clerkship ended. Uh, yeah, any number of things. Uh, that That's the part I would say that uh, made the job really worthwhile. Uh, because I think most judges, if, you, if they're being honest, uh, are I mean, we're we're insular. You know, we may yeah. all be on the same floor, but it's not like we're walking up and down the floors and shooting the breeze with each other. You, know? no, you all have our, your job to do. We have our job to do, and so you're you're in that that that, that little enclave, your home away from home, more than you are at home, really. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you have to surround yourself with people that you want to share time with, and 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 be stimulated by, and stimulate them intellectually, and. That's what I like the best. Uh, long-winded answer to your question, but uh, that's, well, that's what I thought. That's a great answer, yeah. That's the, that's the part I like the best.
0: Were yeah. you on the bench when they transitioned from the annual clerk over to the permanent clerk position? That,
2: that must have happened before I, I got there. because I mean, we do have our career <laughs> law clerks right. that uh, can stay with us forever uh, until they get sick and tired of us. Uh, and then there's the term clerks. Mm-hmm. And the term clerks in the federal system have a max term of four years, no matter you know where you are in the country. You can do a year in San Diego, a year in Chicago, hmm. a year in New York, and then a year in Miami. And at the end of that fourth year in Miami, unless you get a career position, your time as a term clerk ends.
0: Okay, back in the mid-90s, it was a one-year gig. So you'd have a a law school graduate that would come in and clerk for a year, and then they'd go off to their law firm job. Yeah,
2: I I think a lot of DJs uh, limit their law clerks, uh, their term clerks, to a year. There's no hard and fast rule that I'm aware of that says that that is the rule. Mm -hmm. And you can bring a term law clerk on for four years if you want. I know DJs seem to like to have the turnover. They want to give more people an opportunity to be a federal law clerk and of course, if you're keeping them there for two years, then you're you're <clears throat> limiting that, in three and four even more so. So, I know a lot of DJs do that, and I think some MJs do as well. Uh, my preference, however, was at first when I started, is to have my term clerk come on for two years because I thought, you know, for first if they're brand new to the system, the first few months you're learning you the job, just learning what to do, uh, yeah. and then in the middle f- four or five or six months you might. Be you know comfortable, and then you're starting to look for the next job, and then you're sort of tuning out, and right. and so I I just thought a year was too short. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years I thought was was the right amount of time, uh, and I since after maybe I don't know, three or four years decided that I was going to bring term clerks on with the understanding it would be a year with the option for both of us uh, to have a discussion. Around the <clears throat> seven or eight month mark. You like it here. I like you. You like me. Let's stick let, around. Let, let's stick around. Why, Why? you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Why go out and maybe get somebody that isn't going to measure up? So uh, that's what I did.
1: So a question for you. Joanne and I are both mediators professionally with West Coast Resolution Group in San Diego. It's completely different than practicing law. I love it. I love it too. A different dynamic, not as stressful as being a trial attorney, no 60, 70 hour work weeks during and trial. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's good about it. You as a magistrate judge presided over, I would imagine, a lot of early neutral evaluations. Tell us how you would handle them. What was your protocol?
2: So the, uh, not only the E&E, the early neutral evaluation, but also the settlement conferences, the mandatory settlement conferences. By local rule, we were obligated to do both of those. The early neutral at the beginning of the case, mm-hmm. the mandatory settlement conference more towards the end and after discovery has been completed or substantially completed. Uh, the way I conducted them was was the same because a settlement conference is a settlement conference. And, <clears throat> and while we may be evaluative, evaluative in our early neutral evaluation, I'm trying to settle the case. I'm not just there evaluating it and say, okay, you heard what I had to say, good luck. Uh, so I, I employed the same uh, techniques depending on the case, uh, regardless of whether it was an E&E or a settlement conference and trying to resolve the case. And, and that was the second best thing that I liked about the job is that those, those interactions with the parties because there's no two cases that were the same you might have two cases that are ada cases uh, americans with disabilities act cases or two insurance bad faith insurance cases or two slip and fall cases or two patent or trademark or whatever but they're always different right uh, the, the lawyers are different the parties are different the, the issues are always different and to me that was uh, that was interesting. It kept things, you know, it, it it kept things, you know, light and lively and different. Uh, but I will say this: that whenever I was at the U.S. Attorney's office, and I would go up for motion practice, you know, when Jim Perconnie filed his spurious uh, motions to suppress d- d-
1: dilatory motions,
2: dilatory, spurious, spurious and dilatory, and, and meri- we have a few other adjectives: meritless, for and, yeah. meritless, yes. unfounded factually unsound, <laughs> you, you know, legally unsupportable, whatever. What... Now we're on the it's hour. It's that
0: time of day. The, no, the, I
2: think that's someone at the door. The
1: chimes keep going. Wow. So you would file, you would yeah, respond so, to motions.
2: So when we go up for law on motion day, uh, and I'd be sitting in the courtroom, and a lot of the judges had their civil pra- motion practice before. Right and i would listen to these civil lawyers drone on about i wanted you know to take the deposition on tuesday and they wanted thursday and, and you know and we just couldn't agree on wednesday and and you know sort it I, out people I, I wanted i wanted you know the i wanted the emails and they wouldn't give me the emails i was just shoot me i said how could anybody practice this but once i got the the magistrate gig and got into these discovery disputes and and the the settlement type conferences said so, yeah it's kind of interesting trying to resolve any dispute you know it takes sure. a different skill set to try to resolve a dispute no Absolutely. matter no matter how you know silly or ridiculous we might think it is to the parties it may be it, important it's real sure it's it's a real it's a real issue and there may be reasons why this party wants the deposition on Tuesday and this party wants it on, <clears throat> on Thursday and they can't agree on Wednesday. Uh, and there may be very real reasons. And so I, I, sometimes I lost sight of that fact that there are parties here that are engaged in sometimes heated battle uh, of cases that meant something to them and it was important to them, even though I th- might've thought it was silly uh, or ridiculous, uh, the dispute, uh, or the were the issues uh, that were, you know, the subject of the lawsuit, and so I I tried to constantly have to remind myself that this is a serious matter to the parties. Um, but and so I'm I'm kind of circling back to the question that was asked, and that is, you know, how did I handle those things? Uh, I would handle them this way. Before I had the early neutral evaluation, which came first, preceded the settlement conference, which was usually five or six or seven months later, I would have a call, uh, what I called the pre e call with just the lawyers. I would call them up, uh, and I didn't do this when I first started my career. This is something I learned uh, going to an, uh, I was on a panel uh, at a uh, I think it was a patent law panel where I was speaking, and uh, that came up in discussion if I did something like that. I said no, and they said, "Well, it might be helpful, particularly in patent cases."
1: You know, like a phone call. Is there a, thing,
2: a phone call? Okay, and I said, "Well, I think it might be helpful for any case." Yeah. And so, what I started to do within maybe two or three years of starting the the, the job as a judge, I employed that new practice of having the pre-E&E call to kind of prep the battlefield, as we say in the Marine Corps. So I would call up Mr. Pokorny, who's representing the, the plaintiff. Uh, tell me things about the case that I can't read in the, in the pleadings or in the E&E statements that you provided me. Tell me, kind of give me the backstory here. Are you having client control issues Uh, You have any, I'm hoping you'll be honest with me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Are are there other things that I should know? Are there any difficulties, challenges? And whatever. Uh, So I can kind of get a feel for the case. Should the parties be together uh, when we have an E&E? There may be some, the animosities may be such that having them in the same room is not a good thing. Absolutely. It'll be, it'll be antithetical to having a, a productive settlement conference. So I'd have that conference and then I'd call up. I forgot. I don't even know your last name. Rezo. Rezo. I call up Ms. Rezo and say, Ms. Rezo, what you're representing the defendant. What should I know about this? Uh, well, how that you-
0: Picorny. We can't get along. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and I would ask that too. Uh, have you ever tried cases cases with the other party, mm-hmm. uh, the attorney? How, do you get along? Is it professional? Is it cordial? So I'd kind of get that backstory. I get a feel for it. And believe it or not, sometimes I'm I'm going to say, in certain kind of cases like ADA cases and lemon law cases I settled the case 20 25% of the time during the pre E&E call now I wouldn't have the attorneys really? I wouldn't have the attorneys on the call at the same time right I would call them individually right and I hear what they have to say and I said hmm, I think we can probably settle this now <laughs> and so then That's I would brilliant. I would join them together and say hey you know you're not that far apart let's let's see let's if we talk. can wow. you know, I know your clients aren't here and we can't yeah, a course. deal right now but Let's see if you can agree and then go back and sell your clients. Because
1: we, we do the same thing. We have pre-mediation. I do pre-mediation phone calls. phone
0: calls. And it's interesting because a lot of what you just talked about is what I talk about on the phone calls. Yeah. You know, where's my challenge going to be on this yeah. one? What's your relationship with opposing counsel like? Um, tell me about your client. You know, are there is there anything you want to tell me now privately without your client present? Exactly. Any Achilles heels that they fail to recognize, any sensitive topics that, you know, we need to stay away from that Precisely. kind of thing. And every now and then, something comes up in those pre-mediation calls that's an issue we need to resolve before the mediation. Exactly. So we And, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, my client can't make a decision without looping her husband. in, And it's like, well, let's get permission from the defense to have the husband at the mediation so that yep. we can get a final agreement that day. Yep. Right. Yeah. No, they're very helpful.
2: Yeah. I, I And I found that that was, uh, it made me more efficient <laughs> because I could... Hone in on, what crystallize. What are the issues here between these parties? What's really at stake here? I know mm. what the lawsuit says. I can read the pleadings, but what's really, what well, does your client sounds, really want?
0: It sounds to me like you are all set for the post-retirement mediation gig. You sound like you'd be, yeah. You seem like you will be a perfect I, mediator. I sure hope so. That's what yeah. you're
1: going to do. We do I, I call them uh, issues versus interests. I learn what the issues are from the briefs. Talk to the lawyers, I and mean, if it's a, an area of law about which I know nothing, I will do my due diligence and learn it. But then I want to find out from the lawyers, okay, tell about your client. What do, what are their interests? You know, did does Mrs. Smith really want an apology from the city because mm-hmm. they couldn't see the stop sign? Her poor Billy got hurt on the bicycle. What is it? And and that stuff can help because that's that's what's going to drive a settlement.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and I've noticed that sometimes. Um, in some cases, that uh, where there might be hurt feelings or bodily injury, uh, or uh, you know, a business loss or some financial loss, that the um, the defendant and, and the defendant's attorney come in with guns a blazing, mm-hmm. uh, and. If I detect that during the pre-e and e call that they are going to be the pit bull in the room, and that I don't think that that's going to be helpful, I try to you know, alert the lawyer and say, you know, coming in and, and offering maybe an. I'm not saying you, you have to concede you know, liability here, but come in and you know soften the tone a little bit. You know, maybe offer an apology that this, the, the the relationship ended this way. We're sorry that it ended this way. We're sorry right. that you know that we had to let you go. Uh, you know, we but here are the reasons why we did it, and it wasn't because we don't like you or whatever. But but sometimes they just come in and they just want to pound on the plaintiff, and yep. it just drives a bigger wedge between the parties. So I, the the pre E and E call you know, called attention to the those issues and and helped me sort of direct the uh, the discussion at the E and E.
0: Well, and I stopped. Probably over 20 years now, I've been telling mediators when I was a consumer of mediation services, I would call them in advance and say, "Please don't do a joint session." Please, this is back. You know, I started mediating cases back when they used to do joint sessions routinely, and I I put the nicks on that because I was like, all it does is it polarizes the parties. At the time, I was practicing law with Chip Edelson, and. I said he does such a great opening statement presentation in front of the client. The client drinks the Kool-Aid, and then the client's not going to be reasonable in terms of the settlement position. So I did away with them. I don't do them at all anymore, unless the parties ask for it. Yeah, but it's very rare. I'd say yeah. one in a hundred we get. Yeah,
2: see, I, I'm the opposite though. I'd uh, I like I like all the parties being present together, uh, and hearing what each side has to say. Because sometimes, I mean, let's face it, we we may be good but we're not perfect, and sometimes the translation is lost when I'm communicating what the plaintiff has to say when I'm over there talking with the defense. And sometimes they need to hear it. It's right from the horse's mouth, how they feel. And sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it isn't. Uh, But uh, I like all the parties being present in the same room together to start, unless there's a good reason not to. So I default to the be present uh, and default uh, to that unless there's...
0: Well, and I handled mostly employment cases. So those, yeah, I mean, yeah. sexual yeah. harassment, you don't want her in no. the same room with him. No. Yeah,
2: no. yeah,
1: no. yeah. I bring it up with the, with the lawyers in the college. just say, well, it's your mediation. I'm here to help out. like get this thing wrapped up. Do you want to do a joint session? And mostly it's no.
2: Yeah.
1: Very rarely is it yes, but I'll back to whatever they want. Uh, we're going to wind things up. We really appreciate your time, especially on the how you settle a case, because that's what we do, and I, and I think a lot of our listeners are going to be looking for tips on that as well. So, uh, or they
0: may be looking for Judge Gallo to help them settle cases down the road. You never know. Yeah.
1: No, you don't know. I mean, if, I and if you're if you're going to be meeting, I think you're going to love it. It is a yeah. lot of fun. It's it's rich and it's rewarding. It really
0: is. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was Thank a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it was
1: fun. It was Take fun. care, Judge. Good Thank to see you. you.
0: Be sure to check the next episode of Beyond the Bench for another entertaining and informative judicial conversation, all ad-free. In the meantime, if you would like to learn about alternative dispute resolution, call us at 619-238-7282.